I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church, and we're glad to be with you. If you're a guest with us, um, we uh, finished up an Advent series, and in the new year, we're back in the book of Acts, which is where we were before the Christmas season. And we've called this series Church Alive for a reason. And the reason is this, that Jesus has given the church life. Jesus has given Christians life, like real spiritual life. Jesus has given Christians life. Jesus has given his church life through, through the message of his gospel. And he keeps the life of the church moving and going and sustaining through the consistent proclamation of the gospel. And if you're new with us this morning, we want to give good news to you every morning because we believe Jesus is only, he's altogether good. And the good news this morning for us would be something like this, that the church comes to life and the church keeps its life when we keep the gospel central in the life of the church. And this is what we've seen in the life of the early church up until now. And it's been a while since we've been in the book of Acts. We were last week, but it has been four, six weeks. And just a, a little recap. I mean, this life started in Acts chapter 2 after the first sermon where Peter preached. It said those who received the word, that's actually the word of the gospel. They were baptized, about 3,000 of them. By chapter 4, it says, but many of those who had, what, heard the word, they believed by faith. And the number of men came to about 5,000 that day. Chapter 5 summarizes this kind of whole period and says that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. This is happening as they're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. By chapter 6, the church has grown so much that the pastors and those that are preaching this gospel, they, they kind of get distracted and they get overwhelmed. There's so many things happening in the life of the church. It's grown to over 11,000 or, well, what's that, 5 plus 3, that's 8. Okay, so at least over 8,000 people at this point plus the ones that were there from the beginning. And it's overwhelming, and they get distracted. But if you know that passage, you know that, that they make a decision. No, we are going to have our pastors focus on preaching the gospel and on prayer, and we'll take care of this other stuff. And in verse 7 of that passage in Acts chapter 6, it says, Then the word of God, what continued to increase when they made that decision, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And even some of the priests, some of the former religious leaders, they became obedient to the faith. Another big marker in the book of Acts was when, when Saul comes to know Jesus and he becomes the apostle Paul. And he begins preaching this same gospel. And it says in Acts 9.31, And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. It continued to grow. The life of the church continued to be vibrant as Paul now continues to preach the gospel. And now we see the gospel of Jesus Christ go out to more of the known world as we see the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word as he preaches the gospel now to non-Jewish audiences and households and families. And between Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 14 where we find ourselves this morning, this is what's happening we see Jesus bringing this new life to not only people who had a religious background, people who grew up, so to speak, in the church of the day, but we see him bringing this new vibrant spiritual life to people who were spiritual in another way or who were just non-spiritual, irreligious, irreverent people, that they are finding new and real and vibrant life through Jesus. And it brings us to our passage this morning as they pass through these remaining cities, 
and they arrived, they gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done and how he had opened the door of faith to who? To the Gentiles, to these people that were irreligious or followed pagan religions. And they remained with them no little time with the disciples. They remained there no little time, but through all of this time, from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 14, through all of this time and all of these years that are represented here, the church has not only come to life, the church has sustained its life, the church has grown in its life. You know, when we read the book of Acts and when many Christians look at the book of Acts, we think to ourselves, I wish we could have the kind of life that, that they had in, in their church, in our church. I wish, I wish this described my, my Christian experience. I wish this described more of our Christian experience. There's so much life in the church in Acts. And it's come to life and it's grown in its life through the preaching of the gospel. But listen, it's done that in spite of a lot of challenges. A lot of challenges. Challenges like persecution, both from the religious establishment, the religious people, as well as from pagan people. They... They were persecuted. The early church was persecuted and sharply. Some of them were in prison. Peter and John have already found themselves in prison. But it's not just been the persecution from the outside. It's been hypocrisy. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. The early church was sort of filled with hypocrisy the way it can be today at times. And Jesus corrects that. We get to Acts 6 and we have a lack of organization and needing to figure out new strategies. The persecution is getting so bad that some people are being murdered. Saul murders Stephen along with many others. Herod murders James. And on top of this, we have things that, that stifle a lot of churches today, like changes in leadership between Saul and Barnabas. There's a lot of challenges going on in the life of the early church, and yet it continues to be vibrant. It continues to be alive. It's, 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 it's life continues to grow. And we have similar challenges today, don't we? I mean, we don't have the kind of persecution in our context maybe that they had in theirs. But, but do you feel it sort of coming, if not persecution? Do you feel the pressure? Do you feel the pressure that's being applied to the church from outside the church? These things are real today. Our neighbors in the north, Canada, they've imprisoned some Christians for some pretty trite things. You find any hypocrisy in the church today? find any lack of organization, strategy, and mission? Do you find that the church falters when there's a change in leadership? We are coming upon one of the largest transfers of leadership in the church, in the history of the church, and specifically in our nation. All the boomers are gonna, they're gonna hand over leadership in the life of the church to a new generation of leaders. It's the largest leadership transition the church will ever see in our nation historically. It's going to happen, it is happening. The church has challenges today like it did then. And any one of combination of these challenges could have stifled the life of the early church, maybe even killed it in some sense. And that, that is true today as well. One of these challenges could stifle a church, the leadership transition alone. If you stack all these things up, they could kill the life of the church. But I want you to hear this really clearly this morning. Of all of the challenges in the life of the church, as great as they were in the book of Acts and as great as they are today from the outside, had nothing, those things had nothing on the greatest challenge in the life of the church that we see here today in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15. 
And I think I'd be so bold as to say that the greatest challenge to the life of the church is a lack of clarity about the gospel. That the greatest challenge to the life of the church is not politicians and it is not the culture pressuring us as Christians and it is not leadership transition, it's not you know, lack of organization and strategy, although all those things play into it, I think the greatest challenge to the life of the church is a lack of clarity about the gospel in the midst of the church. And just like the greatest source of life in any church is the clarity of, of the gospel and a clear presentation of the gospel, the, the flip side of that is also true that the greatest challenge to the life of the church is a lack of clarity about the gospel. And because of that, a distorted presentation of the gospel that comes from it. And up until this point, the clear message of the gospel through the preaching of the apostles has been something like this, that we can be forgiven for our sin and we can find relationship with God, right relationship with God. And we can be free to, to live the life that God always intended for us by grace alone. It is a gift. And through faith alone, this comes when we not just acknowledge, but when we believe. And that happens when we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that had been true up until this point in the book of Acts, but now the clarity of that message is challenged in, in a pretty clear way. In verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Wait a minute. Grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this is coming from Jerusalem. This is coming from home base. Now the challenge to, to, of this was, was so serious that Paul took time away from a very fruitful and productive ministry. Like Paul was doing just fine on his own, proclaiming the gospel, beginning to see fruit, and we know that Paul's going to have a very fruitful ministry. But Paul knew that this challenge to the, the life of the church was so serious that something had to be done. So verse 2, it says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. They're not putting up with that. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem, to the apostles and to the elders, about this question. Like, what is the core truth of the gospel? And Paul knew if this wasn't clearly addressed, the life of the church could be snuffed out. Because the life of the church is inextricably connected to the truth of the gospel. And so when Paul gets there, he highlights all the things that Jesus has done through the proclamation of this gospel. Verse 3 and 4, so, beginning, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through the Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. Like they're sharing what they shared with them the contents of the gospel, how this all unfolded and brought great joy to the brothers. It should have, and it did. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them, and God had done a lot. And as Paul proclaims these things, as he tells them about all these things, we find out something very important about this challenge to the life of the church. And it's this, that this lack of clarity about the gospel, it was catalyzed by people, listen to me, who would claim to be professing Christians. And in reality, they were, they were also very confused Christians. Verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, remember those guys? 
they rose up and they said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Do you hear the passion here? They, they rose up and they order them. Like they are passionate about this idea. And this is the first time we see this challenge in the life of the church in the book of Acts. But it wouldn't be the last time <laughs> we face this challenge 2,000 years later. And sometimes the confusion about the gospel comes when professing Christians try to take something away from the gospel. We call that a liberal gospel. But let me just say that that is no gospel at all. It's not a gospel. It's just liberalism. This is the gospel minus something actually equals something. That you could take the truths of the gospel that the apostles preached, and in a different context, you could say, you know, those are kind of archaic ways of thinking. There's part of that that's true. We're going to take something away from that, and when we do, we still have something. And sometimes the gospel is distorted that way, and in the early church, we see that happening in some ways. Today, I think we see that happening in lots of ways. That there are some core truths about the gospel, and they're part of it that people say, well, that whole part about Jesus being sort of the only way to have right relationship with God, why don't we take that part out? Because that's, that's kind of insensitive, and that's not, that's not culturally relevant to us. Let's, let's keep a, a few of those other things about the rules and the traditions and, and, and some of those things, and, and we still have something valuable, a liberal gospel which Paul would later say to the Galatians, is no gospel at all. So sometimes we see this coming out in a liberal gospel, but more often the confusion about the gospel comes from professing Christians trying to add something to the gospel. And we would call this a legalistic gospel. But then again, it is no gospel at all. But this gospel, supposed pseudo-gospel, says that the gospel, here it is, plus something equals something. That we would keep all these truths about the gospel that, that the apostles preached, but we're going to add something to it, and then we're going to have something valuable when we do. The gospel plus something still equals something. And in the early church, this was done by what they called the Judaizer clan and tribe. Today, it might be the fundamentalist movement that adds things on. This was the Pharisees that rose up and said this. Remember those guys? The goes, those guys that, that Jesus always talked about and against. The guys that said, yeah, it's the law of Moses, plus all of these other laws, hundreds of them that you have to fulfill to be right with God. The pseudo-gospel is all about making secondary things primary things, and primary things secondary things. It's all about making first things second and second things first. Isn't this what Jesus was always challenging the fairies about? Pharisees about. Did I say fairies? I did. <laughs> Flip of the tongue. Freudian, I don't know. But old habits die hard, right? Jesus has been talking to these guys about this. But here they are. They've professed faith in Jesus now, some of them. But they're still going back to this idea that now it's Jesus plus something equals something. Old habits do die hard. And what the elders in Jerusalem and the apostles are making clear in Acts chapter 15, and we've been through this before, is this, that the gospel plus nothing. It's not that the gospel minus something still equals something. It doesn't. You have nothing. 
And it's not that the gospel plus something equals something. It doesn't. The end of that equation is zero. You have nothing. But the gospel plus nothing, it equals, well, it equals everything. And this is what the apostles are making clear. And starting in verse 6, it says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that is in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what? By faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe we will be saved through the grace, through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Remember, we can be forgiven of our sin and find right relationship with God and freedom to live the life he always intended for us. By grace alone, it's a gift through faith alone when we believe in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. You know the irony about legalism that they point out here? Is that it doesn't even work for the legalist. <laughs> it doesn't even work for the know-it-all. It doesn't even work for the do-gooder. Like, th th that gospel doesn't even work for them. The legalistic gospel doesn't even work for the legalist. And in verse 10, they tell us that. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Like, we, we can't even bear doing all the commandments and keeping them perfectly. Not to mention the hundreds of laws that the Pharisee clan wants to put on top of that. No one can do that. Not even the Pharisees. Not even the legalists. Not even the self-righteous person who thinks they're better than you or anyone. It doesn't work for them either. And all of the disciples agreed on this. I mean, this makes sense, right? All of the early church leaders, when, when they thought this through, when, when Paul and Barnabas came up and said, hey, we, we think this through for a minute. This doesn't work for anyone, not even us, as the leaders. The whole leadership team and all of the congregation in Jerusalem said, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. And all the assembly fell silent, verse 13. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will build the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. How? Or why? That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And how will it be restored? All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And why were the Gentiles coming to faith? Why, why is he able to say these things? Are they all coming to faith because the gospel plus something equals something? No. No, no. Why would anyone want to come to faith in that? 
Why would anyone want to accept that as good news? Why would anyone want to accept like, hey, Jesus has done all these things for you, but there's all this stuff that you have to do for him to keep being right with him. Why, why would anyone want to follow that? Yeah, Jesus does these things and forgives you, but only if we all continue to do all of these things and all of these traditions and all these secondary things and this whole list of hundreds of rules on top of that, that's not good news. That's old news. It's bad news. They were coming to faith because the gospel plus nothing equals everything. They were coming to faith because they heard the proclamation of the gospel, that, that faith in Jesus Christ alone and what he has done for you is, is what forgives you, what finds right relationship with God for you, and, and which frees you to live the life you intuitively know you're supposed to be living, but you can't outside of Jesus. Like, this is the good news. And as they hear these things, they're coming to faith. This kind of gospel clarity, that the gospel plus nothing equals everything, it should also produce a kind of gospel charity, we'll call it this morning, that shows itself in the charity that we show other believers who believe the same gospel that we do, but, but maybe do have different convictions than us on secondary issues. Or maybe do have a different cultural background that they came from and now they're Christians. Or maybe do have a different church background that they came out of and now they understand the truth of the gospel, but there's a charity that we would show to one another. And this is what James says in his final judgment, I believe, starting in verse 19, where he says, therefore my judgment is this, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogue. So I know for some of you, you're a student, you're saying, wait a minute. You're saying, he tells them not to trouble the Gentiles with anything, but he has, gives them four things now they have to do. I thought you said the gospel plus nothing equals everything, but the gospel plus four things equals everything? Is that? Sometimes this charity that we show one another as Christians surrounds things that are more cultural, and I believe that's what's happening here. There were cultural things happening in the lives of these churches, the things that are in the lives of these cultures, rather, and the church found itself in the midst of that culture. And Christians were coming in, and Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians now were all part of the same church, and they had grown up for a long, long time in different traditions and hating each other and not understanding what each other did. And, and so for some of this, it's, just, it's a cultural thing. This is like, you're going to offend another Christian by continuing to eat this meat that's sacrificed to idols. Don't do that. There's no need for that. Some of this is just pretty straightforward. There were cultures that were filled with sexual immorality and all of us should say amen to that, that we should keep ourselves, abstain from sexual immorality. A lot of this was cultural, and that same kind of thing happens today. We, like them, can have a tendency to elevate secondary things and make these cultural things, listen to me, moral things. So we make the secondary issues in Christianity moral issues, and we find ourselves better than other Christians because we believe those things and maybe they don't. So 
a very contemporary example is Christians should or should not drink alcohol. We talk about that one all the time. So, so if we don't, then we find ourselves better than Christians that do. Nothing in the Bible prohibits this, but, but those who prohibit themselves can sometimes find those who don't better, and those who do can sometimes find themselves more free and better, so to speak, than those who don't, and it's a mess. It doesn't need to be that way. That's why if you have the freedom to have a glass of wine at dinner and you invite people over, you might want to ask them if they have the same freedom. And if they don't, you might want to have something else. And if they do, you might want to enjoy a glass with them. There are all kinds of examples like that. But when we elevate these secondary cultural things and we make them moral things, that just snuffs out the life of the church. Sometimes it's cultural. Sometimes it's actually tribal. You know, we come out of different cultural backgrounds, Christian cultural backgrounds. Some of you grew up in very charismatic churches, and some of you grew up in very conservative churches, and some of you grew up in churches where people raised their hands, and some of you grew up in churches people would never do that. And some of you grew up in churches where one thing was approached one way and another thing was approached another way. Communion happened all the time, every week in the same way. Sometimes it only happened a couple times a year. I mean, you've grown up in different traditions that have made certain practices or rhythms, you know, really primary when they're secondary. And now we all come to church together and we have these backgrounds and there can still be this tendency to make those secondary things primary when there's only one thing that is. With that said, I just say, just because we don't want to be given to, because we do want to be given to gospel charity, to be charitable with each other about these things, it doesn't mean that we sacrifice our gospel clarity. I mean, we're not ashamed of the clarity that we have on the gospel because we're committed to gospel centrality. This is why the first of our seven two core values as a church are biblical authority and gospel centrality. We're not, we're not ashamed of that. We're not... We're not going to apologize for that. That's, that's, that's who we are. That's what we do as a church, the village church. This is why our central value or central discipleship distinctive rather is declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we say we want to grow and multiply disciples who are delighting in Jesus, who are declaring the good news about Jesus and displaying the life of Jesus. The one that's central in there is declaring the good news about Jesus because this is where the delight comes from and this is what helps us to display the life of Jesus. Well, the gospel is central to us at the Village Church. And we are part of the Acts 29 church planting network that does have distinctives, four of them. And, and we do as a church have distinctives. If you're a village partner, you know that there are theological distinctives that we have and that we hold as a church and that we're not ashamed of. Matter of fact, we, we rejoice in those things. We think that they're good distinctives and we celebrate them. But Acts 29 says in their first distinctive, distinctive one, it says, we are passionate about gospel centrality. And when we first joined this network, this is the reason why. We are passionate, do you get that? About what? About all these distinctives? Yeah. But mostly what? We are passionate about gospel centrality. The centrality of the gospel and saving sinners and the centrality of the gospel and sanctifying saints. I mean, there are distinctives, but this is the first one. The early church leaders, they were committed to this gospel clarity and this gospel charity. And you know what they did? They did something about it. 
these weren't just convictions that they had sort of in their head and in a doctrinal statement somewhere back sort of, you know, in the, in the bylaws for the church or something like that. They, they did something about their convictions about this. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders, verse 22, with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Here's what the letter said. They're the brothers, both the apostles and the elders. To the brothers who are, are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction to do this. It seems good to us, having come to one accord, we're all united on this, to choose men to send to them, to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. Did you see that? It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Like these church leaders knew there was nothing. It was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And in this cultural context, there were four things that would be helpful for them. Understanding that gospel clarity to practice gospel charity to one another. They're trying to, to, to tell them as, uh, as few things as possible to focus on the reality that it's the gospel plus nothing equaling everything. The question is for us, what will we do? What will we do as a church to keep the gospel central at the village church? There's, there's four things. I want to end by just chatting these things with you for a moment. One, I, we will discuss these things and not debate these things. So as Christians, we will not make secondary things primary and primary things secondary. We will make primary things primary at the Village Church, and that is the centrality, the truth of the gospel. There are all kinds of things today that Christians are trying to make primary, and they're not. The primary thing is the thing that's always been the primary thing. The first thing is the thing that's always been the first thing. Paul said to the Corinthians, I'll deliver to you what's of first importance. And then he goes on to talk about the gospel. So we will discuss these things. We can discuss these things. It's great to discuss them, but not to debate them. We'll discuss these things, but we'll not disparage one another about them. You know, I see that happening in Christian circles. And if I was honest, I'd confess to you, I, I, I think I've done that a time or two. I've even like made fun in my own mind or to someone else about Christians who believe things that are different than what I believe. And that's just not right. It's not loving, and it's, it's sinful. So we can, we can discuss things that are second things, not first things, but we're not going to disparage other Christians that don't believe those things. It's not what we're going to do at the Village Church. What will we do to keep the gospel central? We'll discuss these things, but we're not going to divide over them. They're secondary things, but we're going to discuss them and talk about it. But at the Village Church, we're not going to divide over those things. We're going to keep the gospel the central thing. And we're going to discuss these things, but we're not going to distrust one another because of them. And we're not going to be the kind of Christians that, that end up distrusting each other 
that in the back of our mind, you know, doubt one another and, and sort of keep one another to the side and, and don't trust each other because they believe a, a secondary thing that's different than the, what we believe is a secondary thing. We're not going to distrust one another. We're going to discuss these things. We're going to have healthy discussions about these things. And then we're going to keep the gospel of Jesus Christ central in all the things in the life of our church. Is that good with you? All right. Someone say, like, yeah, amen. I think that's good stuff. Okay, good. That's what we're going to do. What happens when we do it? Like, what happens if we can actually do this? What happens when the church keeps the gospel central? I think we see this in the end of our passage, and it's what we'll end with this morning. So that when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Oh, you just like take a deep breath. It's like when you, when you hear that the gospel plus nothing equals everything, you just, <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that that is true. <laughs> That's just such good news. And when Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. What happens when we keep the gospel central? The church is joyful. <laughs> Everyone rejoices over the encouragement. Everyone goes, yeah, that makes sense. Thank, thank God that makes sense. Thank you, Jesus. That is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Oh, I feel so much better now. The church is joyful and the church is eager to learn more. Tell me more about that. Tell me how that applies to this. Tell me how that works itself out here. Tell me how that applies to my marriage. Tell me what that means when I go to work. Tell me what that looks like when I parent my children. Tell me what that means when I'm in relationship with another Christian that I, I don't agree on this secondary thing about. Tell me, they're eager to learn more. They stay and they teach them. And I'm assuming they're teaching them. It's not here in the text, but I, it's not explicit. I think it's maybe more implicit is that they're teaching them about what? About the things that they had questions about. What is the nature of the gospel? How does that affect our lives? How do I live this out in the midst of a culture that's practicing these things? They're joyful and they're eager to learn more. And Village Church, as we, by God's grace, keep the gospel of Jesus central, I pray and we pray as your pastors that you're joyful. It is for your joy. One of our seven values as a church is joy. We want to be a joyful church. How could we not be a joyful church if we're keeping the gospel central? If gospel centrality is one of our main values, why would not joy be? We want your joy. And we want you to be eager to learn more about how the gospel continues to mean something, apply to, work itself out in all of the areas of your life. And that's the good news, that the church comes to life. We have life, and the church keeps its life when we keep the gospel central in the life of the church. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for Acts chapter 15. 
that in the grand scheme of things, uh, that in all the pages of Scripture, that all that you inspired the writers to write, including Luke, we have this thing. We have Acts chapter 15 where it just becomes clear that the gospel is everything, that the gospel plus nothing equals everything. We thank you that the gospel writers realized these things, that they needed to be included, that, that you inspired them to include these things, that you inspired Luke to include this account to remind us that the early church needed to clarify this. They didn't always get it, but after this they did. And that as a church, we can often do the same. And I, I thank you, Jesus, that this is here and we get to come back to it over and over again to remind us to keep the gospel central. And so in Christ alone, this morning we know our hope is found. In Christ and in him alone, who he is and what he has done. And so, Jesus, we... We love you, we look to you, we sing to you now, and we do it in your name and for your sake.